Hello, OUXers. In this episode of the OUX podcast, I have on Carolyn Sober James for the third time. And this time we're talking about how designers don't necessarily need to learn how to code, but they should learn how to dev. And we're going to talk about what that actually means. We're going to talk about how getting developers involved early in your process is basically their love language and how OUX helps with that. So Carolyn is the UX director at Acumium. She's a certified OUX strategist from cohort one, and she's a former developer. So she really knows what she's talking about on this subject. As far as timely announcements are concerned, I just have two quick things. One, if you have gone to OUX.com recently, trying to enroll in the self-paced masterclass, and you were not able to do that because there was no buy button there, that is fixed now. We're still trying to figure out what caused that very unfortunate bug, but it's it's all good now. So if you did try to go and you hit that blocker and you were maybe confused and thought maybe it wasn't available right now or something, please, on your honor, <laughs> email hello at rewiredux.com and we will send you a $50 discount code to say that we are sorry about that. And thank you, Jack, for alerting us about that bug. Uh, second announcement is we have an upcoming OUX happy hour on April 7th. This is an event all about step one of the ORCA process, the beloved activity of noun foraging. Rick Williams is going to be walking us through his method for automated machine-enabled noun foraging, which will help you parse through way more information a whole lot faster, basically take in more sources um, and whittle down to what those nouns are, which is going to help you identify objects. Um, so this is, noun foraging is an amazing step in really any process. So even if you're not doing the whole work of process or you haven't started doing um, that process, um, it, there's no real pre pre prerequisites. Um, so we have not, as of today, um, March 3rd, we have not um, announced this meetup yet, but just go to meetup.com slash object or in UX and make sure that you are part of that meetup and you'll get the email on that, I don't know, sometime next week. Um, so hope to see you there. And uh, yeah, that's it. Let's go talk to Carolyn. Welcome to the Object or in UX podcast, a podcast about tackling complexity head on gracefully organizing massive amounts of information, and designing scalable, future-proof, and of course, naturally intuitive, object-oriented user experiences. An OUXer is a powerful blend of information architect, business analyst, facilitator, and UX strategist. If this sounds like you, or what you aspire to, you are so in the right place. I'm Sophia Prater, UX designer, chief evangelist of Object or UX, and your host. Let's jump into it. Carolyn Sober James, welcome back to the Object or UX podcast. Hey, Sophia. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, this is, I think you are officially the first third timer. Oh my gosh. Is this going to be like an SNL thing where after you, uh, on SNL, if they host so many times, I think they get like a special jacket or something. Do I get, is there a punch uh, we card? We don't have jackets <laughs> and you already have the tumbler and the notebook. So. I do. <laughs> I like basically like when I, when we create new swag, it's like, well, Carolyn already has everything. So we need to like create something new. So jackets, I guess. Uh, yeah. Like the letter yeah. jacket. Um, right. We will, we'll look into that. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, might be like more hoodie. Sure. Action. That sounds like great. letter jacket. Um, 
So for those that don't know you, for those that haven't been keeping up with all your previous episodes, um, I feel like we do need to take a step back. So our topic today, what we kind of talked about previously of getting into is how designers should dev and -hmm. what does that actually mean? So we'll get into that, but I kind of want to get a little bit of your background first, specifically like sort of your, your journey to becoming a UX director at Accumium. Um, and specifically some of those technical pieces that kind of brought you to where you are today. So can you just get us all up to speed on your journey? Yes, for sure. So, um, so my journey with UX started, it's, it's actually 20 years ago now, um, but I wasn't officially a UXer until I joined Accumium in 2015. Um, for, the, for the 15 years before that, I had been at a biotech company in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and had been moving through a, ver- a variety of roles uh, at that company. But the last eight years of my time there, I had been a developer. And that's kind of an interesting story how I got to be a developer, because that certainly was never on my career goals list when I was like in college or, you know, even starting off as a young professional. But, um, but the last eight years uh, at, at, um, at the company before Accumium, I was a developer. I, I learned how to code both HTML and CSS, a little bit of JavaScript, never got super deep in that, but also server-side coding. I, I, um, when I, I learned on VB.net, which was a very verbose language, but it was an, it was an okay foray into back-end coding. But when um, most of my time was spent uh, coding in C Sharp, um, uh, again, on the .NET framework. And I think the last four years, uh, I was working mostly uh, specifically uh, against the Sitecore content management system platform, which has turned into this like huge behemoth of a, mm-hmm. of a, of a uh, ecosystem, basically. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that, and so, my time at the at the previous company um, was was coming to a close, um, and I was looking for uh, I was looking for a new opportunity. And I um, interviewed at Accumium. I actually initially interviewed for a, de- a development position, and that wasn't a great fit. But um, Dan Costello, our founder and CEO, uh, saw some of the UX stuff on my on my resume, which I had included because I had kind of been a UXer uh, tangentially on the sides, informally at my previous company too. I was kind of always the person that the devs would come to and say, how should I, you know, how should I put this together? Or what input do you have? Um, so I had some of that that I included on my, um, on my resume. And Dan saw that and he called me back and, and basically said, we're looking for somebody to, to do UX. Would you be interested in, in doing that? And I just kind of had one of those be scared and do it anyway moments. And I said, yes, I, let's do that. So I joined Accumium uh, as, a, as a lead UX designer. And it was, I think it was not even a year later, um, I had had lunch with Dan and over noodles, I told him I want to be the director of UX and I want to build the UX practice at Accumium. And he said, that sounds great. Um, I think shortly after that lunch, uh, I had to go out on maternity leave with my son. So, so the, the progression was a little bit delayed, but um, ultimately I think, yeah, I think it was 2016, I um, was crowned the director of UX at Accumium and have kind of been in that role ever since. And since then um, my team has grown, we're, we're a pretty small, um, small scrappy shop uh, anyways, but um, 
my team now encompasses um, user experience, visual and creative design, and digital marketing. So now I'm I'm wearing additional hats uh, and and getting to dip into other areas uh, from the leadership position at least. Um, but UX is still my my main my main jam. So going back to when you were a developer, were you you were the you were the one that you were the developer that the other developers would go to to say, wait, how should this actually work from a user perspective? Were there actually at the company you were working for, were there actually any UX designers there that you were that were official UX designers? Yeah, not for a while. So the, what I what I didn't mention was um I actually proposed at that previous company, I proposed and got sign on for me to take on the first customer experience focused role mm-hmm. in the IT organization in the early 2000s. And that lasted, it might have lasted a, a year, year and a half. Um, I was super green and I really didn't, I, kn- I knew I was interested in user experience and customer experience, but I didn't really know how to, to drive it. Um, myself and the organization really didn't have a clue what to do with it yet. So the organization wasn't ready to support user experience in the way that I think organizations are increasingly now. Um, So for, uh, I'm trying to remember when we got the first official UX designers there. I want to say it it was mid 2000s maybe 2006 2007 so there were there were a few years there where I really was the de facto UXer yeah but But at some point you did get some UX so some designers came on so you know what it's like to be developer working with UX and now you're UX working you've been on both sides of the coin Mm -hmm. what do you remember um and and not pushing you to to throw your previous employer under the bus or anything, but like, <laughs> what do you remember about those early interactions when you were on the development side working when, and then all of a sudden these design, now these designers are coming on and uh, what was that collaboration like early on? Uh, I feel like the, the collaboration was, was overall pretty good. I don't recall there being any like huge, um, conflicts between the design and development parts of the process, which is great because that mm-hmm. not, that's not always the case. I think there can be some contentious relationships there. Um, but what I do remember, and I think this is an ongoing, uh, this is an ongoing pain point, And this is one of the, one of the reasons that I sort of make the contention that designers should know how to dev is that development, uh, you know, even even in uh, I think even in organizations that are trying to move into agile, very often developers end up kind of at the bottom of the hill with a snowball running down toward them, and they have to sort of respond to and deal with designs that are very often just kind of thrown over the wall. And there may already be deadlines looming. There may be budget that's gotten eaten up in the upstream parts of the process. And the devs are just sort of told, well, we, we have to get this done by this time. And you just kind of have to make it work, which is hard for a dev because then they're trying to kind of, it doesn't allow devs to do their best work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I would say that, you know, and, and it's not, it, it, I don't think it's ever a malicious thing. It's not an intentional thing. It's just kind of the, the inertia of a, of a project that can allow that to happen. 
And so uh, I think we, we did see some of that where, you know, there would be um, mostly, mostly deadlines because it was, it was not an agency situation I came from. And so there, there weren't competing, there weren't, weren't really uh, strict budgets or competing uh-huh. um, projects, but, but yeah, I think that, that uh, did happen where the design would get to the devs and there would, there would be some like, oh gosh, but, but did you think about this or did you consider this um, part of the problem? And then it was like, well, just make it work. So, and I think just that's to make really, it work. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really common, I think it's a really common occurrence. Yeah. Just shoehorn that into the code. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you, you, you don't want devs having to shoehorn anything into code because they will make it work, but it creates a tech debt and stink on that code that is really hard to, to get back and fix. Right. And then if you want to go and add on to it, right. So you're creating, you want to add a new feature, you want to add, um, you want to add more stuff, then it becomes harder to go and implement, you know, on top of like, a bunch of spaghetti code that yeah. was, you know, done too fast. Um, and without that, without that kind of collaboration. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a bit about the structure at Acumium. So how does that work? How does, um, design and dev, what is, what is the collaboration like for you today? So, uh, I think the collaboration is, uh, it, it's, it's probably tighter and more integrated than, than what I had at, at, my previous employer. And that's, that's by design. It's not as integrated as it could be. I mean, mm-hmm. there's always room to improve, but one thing, and I think this, uh, this kind of boils down to, because I had the opportunity to shape and build the UX practice, having been a developer myself, um, there's just immediately some greater empathy for how to work with our devs in a, in a productive way. And really what that kind of comes down to is just, um, is just keeping them, keeping them involved early, like bringing Mm -hmm. them in early, um, um, having them be an active part of the design process in some, in, in some cases. Um, And, and I think, you know, because we're, because we're a little smaller, you know, we don't have huge teams of people that we're trying to sort of coordinate and and move between that also lends itself to just a little bit of a, a a tighter, more collaborative relationship. But we try to do a lot of, um, you know, in process over the shoulder reviews as, as dev is happening. Um, You know, even upstream from that, when we're, uh, you know, uh, it's, our conversations always turn into an OOUX love fest, and I'm I'm not really I'm not really apologetic about that. But but with with OOUX being such a huge part of most um, projects we do that have really any sort of moderate to high level of complexity, I always want devs in that that those early stages of the OOUX process where we're doing the um, you know core object relationship identification, we're doing the object modeling, um, and they love that. Like they that is, that's a love language for devs uh-huh. when they can be in on that. Yeah. When they can be in on that early stage structural stuff, that is one of the, the key pieces to, um, to, to making the project go smoothly all around and, and, and have a better end result because um, that structural piece is kind of where devs live and breathe. I mean, that really is, 
that's a key part of them being able to do what they need to do when, when it gets to implementation time. It's really, uh, and if it hasn't been done upstream, they have to do it once it arrives um, in, their, in their labs. So. Right, right. And then that structural piece won't necessarily be done from a user-centered or business-centered perspective. Right. It'll be right. shoehorned in. <laughs> right. Well, or it'll be done, it'll be done based on what's most expedient from mm. a coding standpoint. Yeah. And, and it's not, you can't fault them for that because that's what they know. And they're, right. they're trying to figure out, this is what I need to get done. Uh, this is how I know how to do that. And if they don't have the input to um, the the inputs from the designers or the input up front to be able to understand why we're doing what we're doing and and what's what's high priority and uh, you know that thing, they do the best they can generally. Um, I've actually you know I don't think I've met any devs that are intentionally trying to screw up a design and hopefully they're right. going to be employed very long, but they do the best they can. But but yeah, in the in the absence of better guidance and information, um, it's, it's too easy for them to quote unquote, get it wrong. Just right. They don't know. And so when you're, um, when you're collaborating, uh, uh, on an object map, you're, you're working with them on what are those core objects and the relationships? What do those conversations sound like? Like what kind of input are developers giving you? Is it, is it mostly around constraints and level of effort? Like, Oh, Connecting, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, connecting, connecting these two objects is actually going to be really hard because that's not how the data, like what are the kind of conversations that you're having when you are doing that early collaboration? Yeah. So when, usually ideally when we're doing object mapping, we are doing it with our clients. We're doing it with our business stakeholders. And, um, you know, from the Acumium side, we've got, we've got me or another uh, UX designer and we've got somebody who's going to be in a in a dev role on the project. So the you know for the most part, I think pot- potentially because I have the dev background, the devs uh, don't ha- and partially because it's kind of a <clears throat> it's kind of a UX um, part we, UX wheelhouse part of the process. But the devs aren't necessarily that vocal and. Mm-hmm participatory in that process. However, um, I have had devs ask really excellent clarifying questions that I wouldn't have thought of, of our business stakeholders that directly influence Mm -hmm. how we're mapping stuff out or change or change what we thought we were doing and, and provide kind of a, you know, it, it, it improves, it improves the end result. And it's, and it's just a different viewpoint that, you know, even as a former dev, sometimes I completely miss. And they're like, well, what happens if this, that, or the other thing? It's like, great question. That is a really great question. So the other thing that I think is happening, even when the the devs that I have joining me on, on object mapping workshops, the thing, even if they're not talking a lot, I think what's happening is that that dev is, is starting to build the blocks in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a foundational piece of what they will ultimately have to do from either a data modeling standpoint, a content modeling standpoint. Um, you know, it, they're they're taking they're taking this information that we're documenting in the object map, and 
I'm taking it and I've got a particular purpose for it. And I've got a particular reason that it's important to me. They're doing the same thing, but from a little bit different standpoint, but there's a strong overlap on that Venn diagram of why that, why that information is useful. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to that, that deep, that deep understanding of the, the structure of the system. There is a methodology and I'm, I'm not, uh, I've actually meant to be meant to dive in a little bit and get more familiar with it, but there's, there's a, um, a, method, a methodology or a, a process called domain driven design, right? Yeah. more, which is more um, in the software realm, mm-hmm. but the, the goals of that, my understanding is that the goals of that and the goals of, of OUX are very, very similar. It's, it's like, saying that trying to take a real world constructs and figure out how to deconstruct, you know, deconstruct a problem domain into its parts, and then reflect that problem domain in code in a way that, um, you know, things are named logically, things are organized logically, the relationships between things are very logical. So there's a, there's a lot of, um, Again, I've, I've, I've meant to dive into it deeper and I just haven't gotten an opportunity yet, but, but domain-driven design and OUX, I think are very close cousins, very, you know. Yes. And um, so I, I has Eric Evans is um, at least the guy that wrote the book. So shout out to Eric. And I have the book. I read chapter two because I know chapter two is like very OUX. I have not read the entire book, um, mm-hmm. but that might be a good one for a future OUX book club. Yeah. Definitely. It is quite the textbook, but I'm sure. <laughs> it's, I'm sure it's it's thick. It's thick, but I right. think that we would really geek out on that. Um, so mental note there: we need to do another OUX book club soon. Maybe yeah. uh, Q1 of 2022. Yeah. Um, very cool. So, um, not to put you on the spot, but do you can you recall? Like, can you give me an example? tell me a little story about some of those questions. Like, do you remember any of those, like a scenario where a dev piped up and you were like, Oh, that's such a good question. I'm so glad you asked that. Oh boy. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull a specific example. Um, It's really more of just a general sense. I have that I want to have devs in these conversations whenever possible, because, you know, very often there will be really good questions, interesting insights. Sometimes some of those eureka moments, like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't have thought to even think about it that way. Um, but, but also I just inherently recognize the value that it provides to them mm-hmm. for, for starting their process. So yeah, I, I wish I had a, I wish I had a really great example top of mind. I just don't, I could, I could think on it a little more, but no yeah. worries. Yes. If you, yeah. if you think of it, then email me and I'll put it in the intro. Okay. Um, but, um, but yeah, no worries about that. Um, so other question that I, that I was thinking of was when you were going through that is coming back to constraints. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like usually in those early conversations, it's more that they're asking questions and less that it's like, oh, wait, we can't do that. Cause I feel like that's been a lot of my experience is I, I need to understand the technical constraints from mm-hmm. a, you know, as a, as the designer. So I don't design something silly, right. right <laughs> that like is right. going to take, you know, six months or something. Um, do you, is, has that been, not to put words in your mouth, but has that been your experience or do you feel like it's like the earlier you bring in, I'm trying to articulate this. I do feel, and tell me if you think, if you've had this experience or what your experience has been with this, 
the earlier I bring in developers and I start working with developers, best case scenario in that initial object mapping, um, the less I feel like I get pushback on constraints. Yes. Versus the throwing it over the wall. Right. And then it's like, ah, wait, we can't do this. And I get like, kind of like knee jerk pushback when developers get brought in later in the game. Yeah, absolutely. I think when when devs are at the table for those early conversations, so it's it's almost like, you know, devs can kind of do anything with with enough time and budget and and pizza and caffeine. You know, yeah. de- devs can kind of do anything. the 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 challenge I think that devs run into is that so if you think about like dropping a ball at the top of a hill and there's all these little grooves where the ball could potentially go. Um, you bring them in early, they have the opportunity to help steer which okay. way and understand which way that ball is going to kind of travel down, down the hill versus, um, you know, they get something thrown over the wall and it's this huge rolling snowball and they have no opportunity to add value. They are just in responsive. They're in reactive mode versus okay. proactive mode. Um, so when, when devs are, are, part of the process early, especially with this highly structural work, the, you know, with OOUX, it's, it's immediately like they're, they're comfortable in it. They get it. They understand it. It's useful for them. And they can immediately start thinking about and seeing where are the potential red flags? Where does this potentially get sticky and raise those early? Mm -hmm. So we, so that, that might take the form of asking more probing questions like, does this actually have to work this way? Or if it worked this way, might it serve the need? Or are there, they can also use that time to sort of start probing some edge cases, like mm-hmm. what happens if this happens, you know, and they, they're starting to kind of weave this or, or do this knitting in their head, starting to, to form the, the, the basis of the system that they're ultimately going to to build. Um, So yes, I find that when I have devs in early, there is a lot less need for, there's a lot less pushback. Um, We run into the buzzsaw of constraints a lot less because I think there's just been time Mm -hmm. and opportunity for the devs to figure out how, how do I, how do I navigate us through this to a good technical solution um, early versus designs thrown over the wall. It's this huge snowball rolling over them and they have, you know, they basically Mm -hmm. have their toolbox goes from being huge to being very limited. And um, that's a stressful situation to be in and it's not fun. And I get it that, that some devs get prickly. It's like, I I think what's going on in a lot of devs heads is if you had only asked me earlier, I could have told you that this would have been, there would have been a better way to do this, or I could have told you this was going to be a problem. So, um, so yeah, that, that also is kind of this, you know, this contention I have that, you know, originally we were talking about do do designers need to code. And I think the impetus there is, so you have some understanding uh, of devs. And I think there's other ways to get there, but part of that understanding is just knowing that, that um, devs want to do a good job. They want to get to the end result. They want to enjoy what they're doing. And one of the key ways that we can do that is just to bring them to the table earlier. And they always have good stuff to add. 
And this is like, this is just true of humans. I think in general, this is just human nature. I mean, even think about it from, for the UX designers out there um, that don't have this experience of being a dev. I mean, we know it when it comes down from the business or strategy and we were not involved Mm -hmm. and we just get like, oh, here's this, here's this user story. Here's this use case designed for this. And we have no context. We don't understand why we need to do this or how it fits into the bigger picture, how it fits into the bigger business strategy. You know, I, I, we feel pushback too, or we feel like we want to give pushback, like, wait a second, why is this happening? How does this fit in? And it wakes the, makes the work not as fun and meaningful because we're just kind of like things have been thrown over the wall from the business side. So I think like the more we can all get together, the whole team can get together early on business design, technology, uh, content, right. Mm -hmm. Um, marketing, you know, get everybody together and get us all on the same page Mm -hmm. so that everybody, I mean, just feels like they're part of (laughs) they're part of the team. Right. And not just getting something passed on kind of assembly line style. Right. Um, yeah, nobody likes that. I think it just, because devs are quote unquote, like at the end of the line, Mm -hmm. even if we are working iteratively, which we should be they're they're getting this stuff and without, you know, without that business context, without design context and, you know, like, what the heck? Yeah, right. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense from my perspective, and nobody asked me. Right. So, um, a lot of this feels like backend development mm-hmm. questions. Where are? Do you have your front end developers also part of this? Where does front end development come in? What is? Where is the balance between having front end developers involved in some of those early? discovery and OUX sessions versus, um, versus your backend developers? Yeah, I, I think ideally, uh, I, I would love to have a, a front ender and a, and a server side dev in, in those conversations. Can't always have that happen. So what we try to do is just have somebody who um, have a dev who can you know, probably probably a bit more senior dev, if possible, who can represent the overall interests of dev. And if nothing else, you know, if it's like a primarily server-side person who's who's coming to those conversations, they're going to benefit directly from from the structural decomposition and understanding, you know, from a data and content modeling perspective, how um, how the system is shaping up that way. I think sometimes it's it's we're counting on that person to relay uh, and share mm-hmm. with front enders or other or other back end devs. Kind of here's how this is shaping up. Here's generally what this is looking like. You know, maybe share the go through the object map with them and and have those conversations. So even if I can't have both a front end person and a back end person in in the the conversation, the I, I want to have somebody who can be a represent one be a representative for the dev team as a whole but also take that information back and kind of spread it, spread it around with mm-hmm. whoever needs, whoever else needs to learn about it. And then, you know, if, if we need to, if, if, you know, we have a, a object mapping workshop with, with our client, we have one representative dev there and they take the information back to the team and the team you know, raises all kinds of really good questions or what about this, or then we can revisit, we can, we can go back and you know either get the, 
get the business stakeholders on the horn again, say we've had some additional questions come up or just talk through it internally and, and usually get to where everybody's pretty comfortable. But yeah, ideally I'd have, I'd have a representative of, of both. Um, and on the, on the front end side, where do you feel like front end and, and OUX Where's the intersection between? I mean, because back end and OUX makes a whole lot of sense. Like, right? right? Like that's a very, you're basically designing a database from a user-centered perspective or a, a content management system. Um, yeah. but from the front end, where do you see where do you see that input? Um I I do. I do feel like the probably the the lion's share of the benefit of the of the OUX process is for the back end dev. For the front end devs, I guess my personal experience has been more that I mean sometimes we have devs who are hybrid. They're kind of they're kind of playing in both mm -hmm. spaces, and so that that's that's all fine and good. I feel like for for the front end devs, you know, that I've worked with, their more their deeper involvement starts to come in a bit more when we're actually talking about how this is going to go onto a screen. Right. Um, so a little bit further downstream, that is not to say that I don't want them to be aware of how the structure is shaping up, but I think, um, I mean, roughly it feels like more of the value for front end dev starts to happen with getting as involved as possible, as early as possible. Once we're start starting to figure out, okay, we've got this structure figured out. Now we're figuring out how we're going to actually represent this structure in an interface. Right. Because um, that's the piece that the front end devs are, are really responsible for making shine. So, yeah. Yeah. I, um, so I've been, it's been on my mind lately because I, I did a workshop for Clarity Conference, um, which is a design system conference. Um, recently, uh, Brad Frost was on the podcast. Um, and we, of course, were talking about atomic design and design systems. Mm -hmm. And, I see this like, like once you know, I mean, it's, it, and it's visual design too. It's like front end dev and visual design, right? So that once, I mean, we can do all this structural work, but if it's going to end up on a screen, like we want like all that structural work to manifest into some benefits. Like the reason that, mm -hmm. like, that it actually becomes more, we actually get these more intuitive screens. And, you know, one thing that I'm a broken record about is shapeshifters. Um, mm -hmm. One of the many things that like, where we get this extraneous complexity where we mm -hmm. have cards or modules for an object um, that show up in different contexts and they look different, look different. For, no, yeah. for no reason. So I think that front end dev and also visual design, like having them early on, even if it's not right in the beginning, but I think as early as possible, ideally to start thinking about, okay, here are the things that need to be represented and how can we make these things distinct and recognizable and actually manifest these relationships? So I've got, um, you know, uh, what was the, what the, the, your last episode, the, the music competition, oh, right? Yep. We were talking yep. about, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes, but it was a great conversation, just a case study on this project that you did, uh, for what, who was the, what was the client again? Wisconsin School Music Association. Wisconsin. So you have schools and you have students and you have. You have um, registrations and music and uh, evaluations. And, evaluations. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So showing like, okay, here's all these things and how does like, 
a student and a registration, like, okay, those are, you know, two are, those are two different things, but they're closely related. How are we going to visually show that? Um, so from a visual design perspective, I'm thinking like, I want them thinking about that as early as possible from that OAUX perspective. And then my question here from a, from a front end dev perspective, naming, naming things mm-hmm. and starting to design really efficient CSS mm-hmm. and your HTML as well, of course. But like, sure. do you have any, at Acumium, do you have any kind of like standards for naming conventions when it comes to CSS? Uh, not that I am, a. I mean, we, we very well may, but I, I'm not exposed to it. So I don't know for sure, but I think that could be, yeah, and, and we, we're a little bit of a interesting case because we're an agency and we're working with so many different clients. Sometimes we're working with existing um, code bases too. Yeah. So, so right. anyway, yeah, we don't, we don't have sort of one like naming convention to rule them all or, or naming system or anything. Um, but. I mean, have you, look, I, I feel like it's a big, I mean, from trying to create my own CSS. Um, I mean, yeah. in Webflow, right? We're doing it in Webflow. We're not writing yeah. code, but we're still having to name classes and design, you know, yeah. d- design the whole cascading system of, of child classes. And we're, we're, we're trying to do it from an object-oriented way. Sure. So like, for example, on OEUX.com, we have uh, resources, testimonials. Uh, what else? We have strategists. So let's take the strategist. So we have the, the, the class for that div that the strategist goes in is called the strategist card. Uh-huh. And even the header is called like strategist. We have strategist title strategy. So it's actually the classes are named from an, an o, from an OUX perspective, because mm-hmm. if I want, because I want those things to be distinct. I want the strategist card to look different than the resource co- card. Right. Um, and we actually, I think, do have a higher class, a higher level of abstraction of just a card. So we have sure. card and then we have strategist card. Yeah. Um, any, any, you're, you're nodding your head. I, I, I have no idea if that's like, makes sense. Yeah. So I, I think it, I think it definitely is, is better than what can just happen organically without the guidance of, of an OUX defined structure. Mm-hmm. I do know there's like, there are all kinds of ways of approaching CSS and I'm not, I'm not yeah. familiar with all of them, but, or any of them really at this point. Um, but I think there, there's ways of structuring and naming CSS with regard to those methodologies or approaches or whatever that, I would, I would be interested actually to, to, have you had a front end dev take the uh, OUX certification course um, for the master class? Yes, I believe. Yeah. Okay. One or two. I'd, I'd be interested. I mean, if you yeah. ask them and, and yeah. just say, what, what how, how does this apply to what you do? Cause right. I, I, I think they're probably, I expect there are benefits. I just don't know how extensive the benefits are. Yeah. Yeah, I, and and, and just shout out for any any CSS experts here. Um, I mean, I just had Miriam Suzanne on, and we kind of like touched on this a little bit, but um, but yeah, anybody out there that has thoughts on like really great effective naming conventions for 
for your CSS, I'd be very interested to hear about that. So please, please reach out. Um, it's just, it's a problem within our own websites. Like yeah. I just always feel like it's like, we're, we're trying our best to keep it tidy um, right. and keep it efficient and like efficient in the way that like, if we want to make a change, of course it cascades in a way that's like, that makes sense and is expected. And you don't have like weird stuff happening on another page. That's, right. you know, and, and like, if I want to say that, if I want to change the the color of the strategist title and just the strategist title, I want to be able to do that. And I want it yeah. to change everywhere. So I don't get those shape shifters. Right. Right. Um, so anyways, yeah. let's go. We, we, <laughs> We, we've already like burned through our hour almost here. So, but let me, let, let's go back to kind of our main topic. And I, and I want you to just, can you elaborate on something that you said at the top of the hour, something when actually to direct quote you in some of our emails, all this collaboration can be streamlined. If designers know how to dev, they don't need to know how to code exactly, but knowing how to dev will be super helpful. What exactly do you mean like that? What, what, what is, what is a designer who knows how to dev? What does that sure. look like? Yeah. So, um, so let me, let me start off by saying that I would never discourage a designer from learning how to code. Coding is awesome. It is super fun. It is super challenging. It's a really, it's a really wonderful thing to know how to do if you're interested in it. Um, coding is Coding isn't, people think, oh, you must have to know a lot about math and all this. Coding isn't math. Coding is poetry. Coding Mm. is language. Um, And if you are interested in coding, by all means, it will do nothing but help you. But this whole hotly debated, you know, designers should know how how to code. No, designers should stay with what they know. I don't think it is imperative that designers know how to code. What, and and I do say this from a position of, privilege, I guess, having been a developer. So I, I know how to code, or at least I did. I'm super rusty at this point, but you wouldn't want me coding anything, I don't think. But um, when I say that designers ideally at least know how to quote unquote dev, what it really means is um, it comes down to empathy and it comes down to taking the time and the care to establish uh, understanding with the, the devs that you're working with. Um, I think mostly uh, one, of the, one of the key things that having been a developer has, um, the way it's benefited me moving into a UX role working with developers is just that I understand. I have empathy for what developers go through. And some of that is that snowball rolling down the hill and something getting tossed over the wall at you at you know 90 miles an hour with three days left to make an impact. That's kind of one of those things. But it's also, um, you know, having some understanding of what those constraints are. And to understand those constraints that developers work under, you don't have to intimately know what those constraints are and how to navigate them from a coding perspective. I think we just have to apply the skills that we use every day as UX designers and shift them from an external focus to an internal focus. Mm -hmm. Um, We as UXers have to be really good at asking questions and we try to gain, we try to gain empathy for these really disparate groups of people that we're trying to design for. If I'm designing an app for neurosurgeons or air traffic controllers, 
it would be ridiculous to say, I need to learn how to be an air traffic controller in order mm -hmm. to design this system. So in, in lieu of that, we ask questions and we, you know, try to get close with the people who do understand that subject matter. I think the same thing is true with the designer developer relationship. Um, and actually when I first joined, when I first came to Acumium, there was a conference in Madison, it was called the Mad Plus UX conference. It was actually the last year it was held. And I asked um, Dan uh, if, if I could go and he sort of challenged me. He said, could you speak uh, at it? And so I, I took that challenge and I ended up speaking at Mad Plus UX and the topic of my talk it started off being how to write functional requirements or functional specs that will make developers swoon. Mm -hmm. That was the original title of my talk. Wow. And as I started working through the talk, I realized what I was really thinking about was how to be a designer that makes developers swoon. And what it really came down to was kind of the pillars of it was involve them early, um, ask them what they need from you to do their best job. When I, when I, when I, shortly after I joined Acumium, I, I was speaking with a, one of our devs, a uh, guy named Nick. He's not with the company anymore, but um, we were working on a project together and, and it was kind of early. And I said to him, uh, as I recall, it was several years ago now, but I said, so what do I, what do, what do you need from me in order to be able to do what you need to do? And I remember he kind of got this like sort of, stunned look on his face and, and then this big smile uh, he, he started smiling really big he said I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before and so he he sort of he gave me some I think he was he was a little bit on the spot but he gave me some ideas like well it would be great if you, you know you show me kind of what you're thinking from the design perspective as early as possible and generally sort of the bring us in early kind of right. thing came up really really strong um, and so, so, so this talk at my, my very first talk at Mad Plus UX ended up being just about how to gain that designer developer empathy. Cause I think a lot of the contentiousness when it occurs just occurs because there's not enough empathy on these internal teams. And, you know, I suppose there could be institutional or organizational barriers to, to building that. But as UXers, I think we are in a unique position to extend a hand and, and try mm -hmm. to try to initiate that process. And if we are the ones at the outset saying, I want my devs involved in this conversation, I want, I want, you know, I want them at the table. I want them hearing from the stakeholders at the, at the outset, if nothing else, it will raise you in their estimation. It's like mm -hmm. this person is, is trying to, trying to do, you know, do right by me kind of thing. Um, so, so really, I think when I say designers need to know how to dev, it is, it is having the openness to the, and the curiosity to approach and interact, engage with your developers as, as partners in a project mm -hmm. and as, and as people who are going toward the same goal and extending them the respect to at least offer them the opportunity and say, Hey, we're going to have some early conversations about this, or I'm having an object mapping session with the client. Would you like to be there? Um, you know, you, you can't force them to the table necessarily, but even just being the person who says, I would really like you there. It starts to set up that, that good, 
relationship. And what I do know is that when devs feel respected by designers or anybody, they will move mountains to get done what you want to get done. I mean, they will find a way that Mm -hmm. that pushback that you can get from, from cranky prickly devs who are super frustrated when something just gets thrown over the wall at them, that, that goes away. That becomes rather than, you know, at least that's been my experience that, that rather than that, it's like, how can I get this done for Carolyn? Cause she's, she tries to keep me involved. She's reasonable. She can, compromise. That's the other thing is being really good at compromising and, and asking out the gate, you know, if this won't work, or if you see a problem with this, tell me, and then let's talk about what the alternatives are. Cause devs will very often have six different ways to solve a problem. And, mm-hmm. and all they, all they really want is to be given the opportunity to weigh in and, and do their best work. So. And, and not only how can just to to piggyback on like, how can I do this for Carolyn? But like, how can I do this for the end users? Yeah. Because if they know, and they, I understand that context, it doesn't feel like a bunch of arbitrary decisions that, oh, these decisions were actually, we took user research. We synthesized that user research. We came up with this structure collaboratively. Then there's so much more motivation there. And again, this is, this is just true. This is true for all humans. This is true for UX designers too. If we understand oh, this is, we need to change this thing or we need to redesign this page. It's because of this user research versus it's just some, you know, arbitrary thing that came down on high and we have no idea where it came from. I mean, just think about the level of empathy that we have when we, when we actually hear something from, from the horse's mouth. We actually Mm -hmm. watch those user interviews. We hear their pain. We hear how frustrating this, this particular piece is it gives us so much more motivated. And if our developers can have that benefit too, to really, you know, viscerally understand how this is going to benefit the end users, like we're all going to be more motivated to do good work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We're almost, I I know we've got a, we've got a hard stop here. So I am going to just ask one last question from you. And that is, of course, it's just a little bit of advice other than everything that you've mentioned. And of course, learning object oriented UX is going to help with that empathy (laughs) too. You're going to have a much stronger language. You're going to be able to say things like, oh, I think we're going to need a junction object there. Your developer is going to be like, oh, junction object. All right. This person knows what they're talking about. Um, Anything else, any other advice on how designers can learn how to dev? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, th- I think there's always the opportunity to, I think, I think there would be nothing but value from, from dipping your toe into uh, some, some very basic tutorials or, or mm-hmm. whatever relating to coding. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Any of that additional context or any, just, just to start to get yourself understanding Oh, okay. This isn't like arranging pixels on on a, a static mock-up where I can kind of put anything where I want. There there are real constraints here. So, starting to get some some understanding of of that there are constraints and that it's not just kind of a you know do whatever right. you want kind of thing. Which I don't think designers necessarily. Hopefully, most designers don't think you can do whatever you want and it's just going to get executed. But yeah, um, but a little bit of you know 
sort of baby steps into understanding some coding uh, principles is would be helpful too. But you don't need to you don't need to know how to write HTML from scratch, or you just certainly don't need to know how to write C sharp or you know any right. of the other uh, big mama jamma languages. Just just is there um, is there a language you could would recommend? I mean, is it and is it front end or a back end language? Yeah, I I don't feel like I can make a recommendation now because I'm honestly just so far away from coding. I think the landscape has changed, um, okay. you know, pretty significantly since I was actively uh, developing. I, I I you know C sharp is still around. I think C sharp is great. I it was a it was a really elegant language um, and very very powerful. Like. I remember seeing code that one of our senior, our, our architect actually at uh, the company before Cumium had written. And I looked at it and, and it was doing so much with so little. It was just like, how mm-hmm. is this tiny little block of code doing all this? And that's why I say coding is poetry. It's like in yeah. the hands of the right people, it is, it's incredibly powerful. So if there's, if there's the opportunity to get some, some insight into that, I don't, I, I don't feel like I can recommend the language. One thing I think that, 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 that designers could do is, you know, if you're working in a particular organization that has a certain tech stack or has a preference or, or our devs only do, um, you know, only do Angular and React or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. go, to the, go to the developers and say, if I wanted to, to do the play school, my first dev uh, <laughs> foray, are there resources you would recommend for me? Are there places you would recommend I go to learn more? Or That's great advice. Or even better, I, one of the ways I learned how to be a developer as I was learning how to be a developer was paired programming. So mm-hmm. paired programming is, for people who don't know, is where de- two devs, it doesn't necessarily have to be a novice and a senior. It could be two senior devs noodling together on a really hard problem, but you literally sit to, well, in COVID, you're not literally sitting together, but but in the, in the olden days when we actually could gather together, you would be sitting like at the same desk, one screen, one keyboard, one person doing the, the, the typing and, and the entering of the code and the other person um, just advising or it was, it was a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And that invariably led to much better end result. Um, and I did that as a, as a junior dev working with a more senior dev. And the senior dev said, this actually really helped me because your questions made me think of stuff that I wouldn't have thought of. So even as a newbie and me asking quote unquote dumb questions, cause I was trying to learn, it helped this more senior dev um, build something better. So maybe there's an opportunity and it probably would feel like you were reading Greek or, or uh, whatever, but if you have a dev who's open to you sitting and having a paired programming session where they can talk through, this is what I'm doing and this is how I'm doing it. Um, that could be really interesting too. And I would certainly recommend it. That's great advice. I mean, that could be something like you go to them, you ask them what resources spend, you know, a couple afternoons digging into those resources, just so you have the basic basics and then going and sitting and watching over, uh, one of your dev's shoulders and, and asking some questions here and there, uh, without completely, you know, throwing them off. (laughs) Right, right. Well, there, there is the dev bubble that you need to respect. So it has to be something that you arrange with the dev beforehand and they are aware that they're going to have you. Yeah. I mean, even if it's just an hour, I can imagine that that would give you so much. It's it's 
it's giving that empathy. It's just the way that ethnographic research gives you empathy, like going and seeing the users in their natural environment, going through, um, you know, and struggling to use your software is so powerful. So actually going and watching them. And I I love that. Right. Well, and, and, you know, not, not from a, this, this wouldn't be even be from a, well, the other thing that it will do is you just being curious enough and being yeah. interested enough to ask the question again will will increase their trust in you will increase their best increase you in their estimation and it's not that you that it's you shouldn't be doing it in a disingenuous way like well i'm going to come sit with you and, and then i'm going to go back to being an a-hole to you and, and <laughs> whatever it's like but but if you literally come and, and are sort of open and say i would love to learn more that will improve your relationship with, with the devs even if you don't learn a lick of lick of code or you don't take anything away code wise from that conversation it's good for the relationship so right. yeah very cool thank you so much carolyn this is a bit amazing i think it's gonna be really inspiring for people really actionable so thanks again for coming on for the third time yes. and um yeah have a great rest of your day awesome thanks sophia thanks for having me again Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit objectoriedux.com slash podcast for show notes. Our soundtrack is Fighter by Ruby Bell, courtesy of Sugaroo Records. Happy OUXing!